there are some pretty lazy tropes in the world of war films. Any film genre, really. Most genres you can think of are grounded in tropes we've come to expect, but especially genres with built-in villains. Black hats versus white hats in a western is the classic example. Horror movies have the slasher and the final girl. In war movies, it's the Nazis. Nazis versus pretty much anyone who isn't a Nazi. Calling Nazis evil isn't exactly a lazy war film trope, but it's tough to discuss Nazis in film with any degree of nuance because they're often depicted with zero nuance whatsoever, and any nuance you might try to point out will get you called a Nazi apologist. So not only have the Germans in World War II often been painted with the same brush and that brush just keeps getting broader and broader, but how they're painted sometimes borders on the cartoonish. And I get it, the Nazi regime was one of, if not the most evil to rise to prominence in recent human history. So much so that all other evil, real and fictitious, personal and systemic, is measured against Germany in the 1930s and 40s. It is, of course, the stated and intractable position of the Danger Close podcast that Nazis are bad and should not and must not be normalized. This is just all by way of saying that spinning a yarn about World War II, with Germans as the protagonists, is yarn spinning on hard mode. Today's film is a return to our much-interrupted series on naval warfare, but coming on the heels of All Quiet on the Western Front, it almost constitutes a micro-series on films about Germans at war in very uncomfortable places. Like the back of a Volkswagen. And yes, while both movies are what I like to call the three T's, tense, taut, and Teutonic, and both of them are reflecting on lost wars long past, this one is about, if not strictly speaking Nazis, at least people fighting on the side of the Nazis. And they're not cute or funny or have Scarlett Johansson for a mom. They aren't having a change of heart or hiding a Jewish orphan in their attic. These are some haggard-ass German men eating moldy bread and hairy pork in the belly of a submarine, sinking Allied cargo convoys headed for Britain. It's a very fine line this movie treads. A high-wire act that most filmmakers wouldn't even try to walk, where this movie does backflips and somersaults on it without a safety net, and almost never loses its footing. And sure, most of the men on board aren't dyed-in-the-wool Nazis. Most of them don't care for Hitler and Goering and the rest of the high command. And they're mostly pragmatic and affable enough fellows. And, spoiler alert, no, it doesn't end well for them. They spend most of the movie getting their asses handed to them and surviving the most daunting opposition imaginable, only to die on dry land. It's a classic attempt at depicting the pointless brutality of war, which is about as close to a trope as this movie comes. But here's the thing about World War II in particular. You can almost only make an anti-war film from the losing side. It's hard to call it pointless if you're fighting against the Nazis. War is hell. People make films about it. And we love to talk about them. So put on the Tipperary song if you have no objections, and sing along with a Marine veteran, a film critic, and a theater director. As we dive three times deeper than our rated limit into Wolfgang Peterson's tense, taut, and Teutonic tale of a beleaguered U-boat crew at the height of the Second World War. Das Boot. Oh, 
Hold in. It's danger close. La Rochelle, France. Autumn, 1941. Germany's vaunted U-boat fleet, with which Hitler hoped to blockade and stamp out Britain, is beginning to suffer its first major setbacks. British freighters are now sailing the Atlantic with stronger and more effective destroyer escorts, inflicting heavy losses on the U-boats. Nevertheless, the German High Command orders more and more U-boats, with even younger crews, into battle from their ports in occupied France. The battle for control of the Atlantic is turning against the Germans. 40,000 German sailors served on U-boats during World War II. 30,000 never returned. Welcome back to Danger Close, a war film podcast. My name is Dan, and I am here with my partners, Katie and Liam. And today we are back to dive back into our naval series that was interrupted for a minute, and we got on this reduced schedule, so we've shuffled things around a little bit, but this was always on the docket, and it is Das Boot from 1981, which is a Wolfgang Peterson film in German language originally. And Katie's here with our mission briefing. Based on the best-selling novel by Lothar Gunther Buchheim and directed by Wolfgang Peterson, Das Boot was highly controversial in its native country, but received rave reviews around the rest of the world, particularly in America and England. It was one of the rare foreign films that landed Oscar nominations outside the foreign language category. And while it didn't take any statues home, it did get six chances, with Best Director, Best Adapted Screenplay, Best Cinematography, Best Film Editing, Best Sound, and Best Sound Effects Editing. With a record-breaking 32 million Deutschmark budget and nearly two-year development process, it was the most ambitious German film so far. Part of the reason the film took so long to make is that they were filming both a TV show and a movie at the same time. Initially, it was cut for the Kino Film Festival and only given the full-length treatment a few years later. In 1997, Peterson released a director's cut that he tried to make the best of both worlds and was generally well-received by audiences. We all watched the director's cut for this episode, and in light of the three different versions, I'm wondering, have you guys seen any of the other versions? And regardless of that, how do you feel about the editing and the quality of this as a whole? So if I can piggyback on your question for a second, this was my second time watching the film. Are, is this first time for both of you guys? Yes, for me it is. It is my first time watching the film. Okay. So I guess I'm the only one who can actually answer this question. <laughs> well, so it's my first time watching the film, which I'm a little sad about. Oh, Really? And I and I don't mean to like hijack you answering the question Dan, but I should have seen this movie 20 years ago. So I used to work at Best Buy after after I graduated college. That was my one of my first jobs just like home kind of meandering through life before Enterprise Rent-A-Car. So before I worked for Enterprise, I worked for Best Buy. Back when they sold movies in earnest. They still have them, but like like CDs and DVDs were over half the store and that's where I thrived. I would just 
hang out there and sell movies. It was like I was working at a video rental place, except I was just convincing people to buy the movies instead of rent them. And they would have these two for 20 deals that would pop up every once in a while. For $20, you could get two two disc special editions. It was like a buy one, get one free kind of deal. And so I bought the five to six hour miniseries on a two disc special edition and had it on my shelf for probably 15 years. Holy shit. On DVD. I was like, I know one day I'm going to want to watch this movie. And I just had it up on my shelf. Just never happened. You know, it's like, because people describe the movie and like, you know, it's really good, but it's like, do I really want to sit and watch four hours of Nazis on a submarine? It feels like a chore. And here's the thing. Most of the time, those chores pay off for me. Like I treated Taxi Driver the exact same way. I'd sit down and be like, is this the day I watch Taxi Driver? Nope, probably not today. And then it's like one day at like two in the morning, I'd had enough to drink. And I was like, no, fuck it. Let's watch Taxi Driver. And I fucking loved it. And I'm sure that would have happened with this movie if I had watched it earlier. But the funny thing is, I ended up like I was downsizing my old DVD collection to make room for my Blu-rays. Like you do. And I fucking sold this movie at the exchange a year before we started this podcast. Oh, so you had to buy it again. I know. Well, I, I, I rented it on my Apple TV, but I was like, I'd kind of like to watch the five to six hour miniseries, please. I mean, I had it here on my shelf. There's still a space where it should be. But like now it's. It's not available to stream anywhere. You can't rent it for love or money, so... No, and you can't get it on Blu-ray either. The director's cut is all that's on Blu-ray. No, so I had, like, the last copy on Earth, uh, and I and I sold it. Yeah, even from everything I've read, this three-and-a-half-hour director's cut is a real director's cut where the director was involved. Heavily, heavily involved. Due to film melt? whatever that is, <laughs> they lost the original soundtrack recording, so they had to bring the composer back in, redo the entire soundtrack, which I'm sure when you're redoing the soundtrack 15, 16 years later, the quality is better because the equipment's better, etc. And then those poor editors had to recut the new soundtrack to the now three and a half hour version of the film. So... To do a summary, the theatrical, I think, is uh, right around two hours, something like that. So it's just mm-hmm. like, it's quick for for the amount of material that was out there. They cut a ton because of usual reasons, right? Studios are like, it's too long. We need to make this a more palatable version, blah, blah, blah. But with a story like this, where kind of the boredom and the fear and the exhaustion of the characters is palpable and important to the story, which I'm sure we'll get into... You can't make it into a short film or you lose a lot of that. Clearly, later on, Peterson was able to go in and make it closer to the original project because this was originally they were trying to make it uh, a TV series. I think it did come out in Germany as a TV series like four years later or something like that. From everything I've read, there's a little more character development and a little more dialogue and interpersonal drama in the five to six hour version, however long that one is. But this three and a half hour director's cut is the best showing of this actual film. So this is the one I would recommend. Do uh, do we get more of Thompson in the six hour? It's <laughs> a good question. I know. I, that's what I was wondering. Although I have to say, after six hours... 
I feel like the ending would be an even bigger kick in the balls. Definitely. If you're like along this ride this whole time and then that ending hits after like six hours, that's got to hurt. You're not wrong. But instead of doing our usual weird thing when we end up talking about the ending first, why why don't we start at the beginning and talk about this pretty insane bordello party scene at the beginning of the film because i remember the first time i watched it i was like holy shit i I was like i don't know if i've ever seen people party this hard in real life or in a film best part of the movie fucking loved it are you serious i was here for it (laughs) no i mean damn damn that's the hardest you've ever seen people party like jesus i mean I've been around Marines and air traffic controllers and I've seen people party pretty hard, but that's pretty, yeah, it's pretty intense. I was going to ask Liam if he could actually hang with the people in this room, but apparently Katie's the one to ask because it sounds like Katie was underwhelmed. Oh, I was like, oh yeah, this is a good party. I'd be down to go. No, yeah, I've, I feel like I've, I've been in those rooms before. Not that fancy. No. Let me just say, like, not that fan, but no. as far as like the level of intoxication, did I tell you guys about there was a, a, a party I was at in college. The party that we would regularly go to, there was one like once a month. And a friend of mine who lived off campus made chili. And she would just have chili parties where she'd make a bunch of chili and have people over. Chili and they'd parties. Get shit faced and eat the chili and things would ensue. But like townies would show up to this thing. <laughs> and there was. I'm trying to fucking remember the guy's name and I don't and I feel really bad, but he like ran the local bookstore and he always wore like not, it was somewhere between a fedora, a cowboy hat and just like a hobo's thing made out of canvas. Like, I don't know what kind of hat this was, but he had long hair and a goatee and he was a very, very smart guy when you saw him sober. I never saw this man sober. But the thing that I remember the most was the time that he rolled up to this party with a keg that he did not buy. He found it by the train tracks and rolled it down the train tracks to this house party. Oh, my God. At least this is what he described to us when he showed up to the party with a half a keg and bleeding profusely from his head with no memory of how he got there. That's my lasting memory of this man whose name i now forget these are my people my bestie threw parties up until a few years ago that were absolutely epic on halloween like costumes were planned the whole house was decorated like it was it was wild and i am now at the point where i'm like i don't know if i could even handle that (laughs) but for this it's like oh yeah just go i want to make sure we're not downplaying this party scene like a dude pulls out a pistol in the middle of it and just starts firing off rounds into the wall like i'm just saying it's a pretty wild party there were people who would pack a weapon there were a couple people who would bring guns because (laughs) this is minnesota there is a certain level of bros who like i am open carrying because i can right but no one would ever shoot a gun off because then you would get tackled and beat because that's not safe. We do not shoot guns inside. We shoot them outside. I was wondering how many of these actors really got drunk in this scene. And the only bit of trivia I could find is that uh, Otto Sander, who plays Captain Thompson, who is probably Liam's favorite character in the film. Yes. (laughs) He was really drunk in this scene. As soon as he showed up, I was like, this man, 
this man is fabulous and I want to be him when I grow up. You know, I wanted to really screw my brains out tonight, but I am on, not in the condition to fuck. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, who hasn't been there? I mean, the man has puked all over himself and is slicing the neck off of a champagne bottle with a butter knife and then proceeds to pretty openly talk shit about Hitler. <laughs> but in the smartest, best way I've ever seen. Like, So Dan turned us on to this really great 50 minute documentary called Das Boot Revisited, an underwater success story. And usually when I do my research, I am all about finding original reviews that released as of the time. And I, for the life of me, could not find anything, probably because I only took one year of German in high school, <laughs> so I can kind of understand like every like seventh word. But other than that, I'm screwed. And this really gave us a perspective on how negatively this was perceived in Germany when it released because of the... They wouldn't call it this now, but I would say like the sensitivity of the film in talking about these men's emotions with what they're doing in the moment. And one of the big things for me that set the tone is this opening scene where more than one person is like, yeah, yeah, that Fuhrer, he's he's so great, isn't he? To our wonderful... Abstaining and womanless Führer who rose gloriously from apprentice painter to become the world's greatest battle strategist. Medal or not, he'd better watch his mouth. Would, isn't it true? Hmm? Just the smartest dude in the room. What a brilliant man. So glad he's in charge. He went from being a failed painter to everything that he is now. <laughs> exactly it's so well done and that maybe that didn't hit the same way then because obviously this came out in the 80s it's still a lot of people are still alive who experienced all of that to me it's very telling of what the film is trying to say by having those characters speak up in the very beginning of the film and i think it's just like the concept itself is very potentially off-putting and this is something that we've still dealt with recently the beginning of this this podcast when we covered Jojo Rabbit. It's like, hey, we're going to make a movie where the main character is part of the Hitler Youth, but don't worry, you'll like him. And it's like, that's a very, very fine line to walk when you're like, hey, this is a story about a heroic German U-boat crew and their trials and tribulations and how they are depicted as real people. And like that could very easily go away that nobody wants it to go. But I think this movie does walk that line pretty well. Yeah, well, and it's funny because the new All Quiet on the Western Front kind of dropped into our lineup sort of randomly because we realized just in time to make it a current episode that we were like, oh, this is coming out now on Netflix. Like, we should drop this in here, even though it's in the middle of our naval series. So the fact that we're doing two German language German films in a row is a total coincidence. But this does share a similar thread in that you're talking about Germans looking back at World War II. Of course, in All Quiet, it's World War I. In this case, it's World War II. But nonetheless, it's Germans looking back at 20th century wars that they, if they didn't start them outright, they were the 
the main aggressor. They were the main aggressor, certainly in World War II. In World War I, there were other people involved as well, but they were one of the main aggressors. So the concept of showing heroism or even just showing an entertaining war film that's not super obviously anti-war is very touchy. Now, All Quiet is pretty obviously anti-war because it was from its inception as a novel. But the author, who we'll talk about a little bit later, but he spent time on U-96. Mm-hmm. And so the book and the story is fictionalized a little bit here and there, but based on his real experiences. I'm going to put out a lot of surplus ordinance on this because I read several articles, including a lengthy review by the author on the film, what he liked, what he disliked, his opinion. One of the things that he keeps coming back around to was that Kriegsmarine officers and sailors were not as anti-Nazi as is depicted in this film. So Mm. again, it's complicated. Peterson is trying to show the Nazi on board is kind of a dork and everyone's openly making fun of him because they're like, dude, you don't need to shave. We're going to be down here for 40 days. Like no one's paying attention. Like right. stop. You're not impressing anyone. You're not getting promoted. Like quit being. You don't get points for. Yeah, you're not getting points from the Fuhrer. Or we see when they are meeting up with the officers on the resupply ship that they're like Heil Hitler left and right. And it's, <laughs> you know, like none of them are even responding. In retrospect, it's hard to say. How accurate is the anti-Nazi sentiment on the boat? But I think it's fair to say that sailors, especially on U-boats, being relatively detached from the rest of the army, were possibly a little more free to have that sentiment and to make up their own mind and less indoctrinated than, say, German infantry troopers in France or in Germany. I can't say that I've read history that backs that up, but that seems to be the idea. Either way, because of multiple factors here, and we'll talk about the director's intent later, this is a complex thing that you're trying to depict. Yes, incredibly. So Wolfgang Peterson wrote the screenplay and the telenovela for this at the same time, which I I cannot even imagine that challenge of writing something that's five, six hours long with something that's like two, two and a half hours long in your mind. Obviously, the original director's cut came much longer than that. Well, and Buchheim had also written a 600-page treatment of his book as a screenplay for this that was shot down. They were like, it's too long. Uh, In fact, that ended up being why he split from the project. They were originally considering involving him more other than just paying for the rights to the novel. Right. And then him and Peterson butted heads and Peterson was like, no, you can't write this screenplay. And so he left the project. Right. It's like the anti-Mario Puzo. Exactly. That's definitely what it felt like from hearing in that documentary about the author's reaction to the story and the film. And for other reasons that we may or may not get into, Peterson was very invested in telling a complex story, no matter what the length was. And obviously... For me, at least, from the film, it does seem like he is aiming for anti-war in this. He is not trying to glorify it, but I don't think that's how it was received in Germany. And I've been meaning to ask you guys about this. Why do you think that is? Why is this so controversial in Germany, but not in other countries? Well, for a counterpoint, the only thing I can think of is... Maybe how American Sniper was controversial Mm. when it came out. Tell me more about that. 
you know, you have largely along political lines, like you had people who were very much like huzzah American sniper. And then other people that thought that it was glorifying a person who in a lot of ways, maybe shouldn't have been glorified. And like Jesse Ventura, he thought that for sure. Yeah. And it's, you know, not that the story itself didn't have a lot of depth and complexity to it, but maybe how it was made, they thought, was leaning a little bit too much one way that they felt was less than palatable. Yeah, I just remember that being something that, you know, seemed very polarizing in America as far as a story that was maybe too jingoistic or too shiny. I think that's what Buchheim himself thought. He felt that this film was like contemporary Nazi propaganda in a certain way. Except that he thought that the officers weren't so vocally anti-nazi he had lots of conflicting issues with this in an effort to distance himself from from it okay. i think yeah that was part of it is i think initially his reaction may have been him trying to distance himself from a movie that in germany wasn't doing so well or at least was dredging up a lot of controversy i'm gonna say this more than once i think this is complicated and none of us are german and we didn't grow up in germany so it's always a little hard to speak for another group of people that aren't here to represent themselves. But because we talked about this a little bit in all quiet, when you're looking back at your own history, I think German history in the 20th century, when it comes to these wars is the extreme example of this. No one in any kind of mainstream way is coming out to defend Germany's stance in the two world wars. Right now you can defend errors you think politicians made you could say that weimar germany didn't support their people in the interwar period and were contributors to why world war ii got started like there are intellectual arguments to make like that that historians right. can make that have relevance and have importance right exactly but a feeling that i really got from this film and you see it especially in i want to say it's when they're trying to make it through the strait of gibraltar in act three and you've got the sub on the surface and there's flares popping everywhere and there's this pretty triumphant sort of not like martian music but like dun, 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 you know it's like kind of exciting like action war film kind of music mm -hmm. yes i remember thinking during that scene that many people probably saw this as a triumphalization if that's a word of these german sailors when really what I thought was the triumphant feel to the music was about their survival, not about Nazism, not about the war, not about Germany winning the war, because you never get that sense this whole time. Like they kind of feel like the underdogs and again, they're getting just beat up this entire movie. To me, any sense of triumph or positivity was just about, yay, we're not going to die in a watery grave in this tin can, right? It was a personal sense of triumph, not a national sense of triumph. And how much did those two things conflate from a filmmaking perspective? That's kind of what the Nazi propaganda machine was all about to a certain extent was finding these real stories that people could root for. Exactly. Not that this is based on a novel, but you know what I mean? Like based on a novel, based on someone's actual experiences. Right. right. There's plenty of truth in it. This isn't pulled whole cloth. Yeah. It's fictionalized true history. Right. 
but you know when they when they weren't making up bad things about minorities to scapegoat people the other thing they were doing the other arm of that is lifting up the people that you want recognized and showing them in a heroic light and if this had been made by Goebbels how different a movie would this have been made Right. Well, and that, and that's the other thing is we always talk about how something like our first episode, right? Full Metal Jacket. It's like pretty clear to most people that really examine that film that it was made in a anti-war kind of way, but that you're never going to stop a certain percentage of the population, usually a percentage of the population from the protagonist's nationality, in that case, American, right? During the Vietnam War, from glorifying the characters or glorifying the concept or even joining the military due to the film. If neo-nazis wanted to screen this film it's a real easy edit to just cut out the few scenes where thompson subtly talks shit about hitler or where the captain is a little disillusioned about higher command and what they're doing it's like you snip seven eight minutes here and there and all of a sudden you have a triumphant sub movie with honorable Kriegsmarine sailors like doing their best for Germany at the time, right? Like it's not that hard to do. Yeah. So these differences are subtle and people can interpret them in different ways, I think. Right. Because you do find yourself rooting for these guys. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm, I found myself sympathizing with the characters being put in this difficult situation. And I mean, you're not hoping that the sub implodes and crushes all of them, right? No, but also at the same time, when they, when they're firing off their torpedoes at that convoy, just from the way the filmmaking is and the way the perspective is shot, you're expected to kind of celebrate their successes with them and to fear their failures with them because failure of course means death. Yes. The film is asking you to root for them. What would be the American equivalent of like watching something that as an American, you would be expected to root for, but maybe you shouldn't necessarily. Would it be like a movie about the Enola gay? Yeah, that's a good example. Well, it's a matter of, And justifying the means and people being split on that idea. I think in the case Mm -hmm. of the history behind this, from an allied American perspective, it's really easy to say, oh, look at the Germans torpedoing cargo ships and killing civilians. That's one very one-sided way to look at this. But don't forget that the German response in both wars to using submarine warfare against cargo ships was that blockades were illegal. I'm not sure if that was based on the Treaty of Versailles or what treaty made blockades illegal, but the British violated that treaty. They were like, we don't care. We're going to take over the ocean and blockade and stop food from coming in, et cetera, et cetera. And the Germans were like, okay, well, if you're going to do that, then we're going to use subs. And the other thing is the British especially were quote unquote cheating and they started to hide weapons and hide deck guns and hide other things on these civilian freighters so that they could either defend themselves or they were actually importing weapons while pretending not to because they weren't supposed to according to treaties this is the whole sinking of the lusitania event in world war one where the germans were like no there was military personnel and weapons on that boat and the british were like no there wasn't Right. So like it definitely becomes a lot of he said, she said, where it's not just black and white baddies and good guys in these particular instances when you're looking at naval warfare. Again, I'm not 
defending Nazi Germany invading Poland. I'm just saying. Dan Ferlito, Nazi apologist. <laughs> do we have to do our standard bit where we're yeah, like... By the way, guys, we are anti-Nazi on Danger Close. I don't know if you know that about but us. But again, it's just these subtleties that especially matter at the time to the people involved, but are very easy to lose in history 70 years later, especially when you're the losing country. It's like those little details that make those decisions carry a different weight kind of go away. So it's easy to malign specific decisions once those details are gone. Right. And I think the thing that impressed me with this is it walks such a fine line. It doesn't necessarily denigrate their actions and it is a little too heroic for them in in the way of like uh, fuck Hitler and all that shit that we that sense that we see throughout the film. But there's also in my mind, this is an artistic piece and it is about it is talking about the general cost of the Germans for the war and the tragedy that is just losing all of these people, all of these men being forced to fight for a evil regime, a truly terrible, terroristic, fascist regime. And they have no choice in this. And that's not to excuse their actions, but it is to say they were humans and this was the loss that we experienced because of Hitler. And I think that's an interesting point. It doesn't invalidate a million other points, but it is something that to me is like, I can see how these men survived what we now think of as like an unforgivable war. And I think that was the thing that made Germany uncomfortable is that it was too close. It felt apologistic. Well, especially when you have a country who historically has gone on the record to try and right the wrongs of what they think they committed in these two world wars, but especially in the second world war. Right. So for example, we're getting a little bit into politics here, but the U S as a country has not done this. We have not really examined our wars of the last 50 years, how just they were or not. And taught, that in school as much whereas germany really did that you know they built monuments to jewish homes from jewish families that were destroyed after the holocaust and you could see those things on the sidewalk in berlin they teach about the holocaust and about their role in the world wars in their public school system our involvement in vietnam our involvement in iraq is not talked about in that same way in school and so it's it's a lot easier for people here to be neutral or patriotic or pro whatever war we've been involved in. Whereas Germans for a long time have been taught in public school about that. Like they're not hiding. The government hasn't been hiding the actions of their own government in the thirties and forties. They've exposed it and tried to make amends. They tried to make amends and they've tried to move forward, but in a way that's not forgetting their past. And so that's a that's a sensitive place to be making a movie. Also, don't forget, we're talking about this start. They started filming this in 79, right? So we're talking about 42, 43 years ago. Yeah. So this is West Germany, East Germany mm -hmm. type thing. Mm -hmm. You know, this was still almost 10 years before Germany became a whole country again. So I think that is 
hugely impactful. And I, I love the fact that this is an entirely German production from the director, screenwriter, cast, everything. Like, they went to the effort of casting a ton of different varieties of German folks. Because the American bias is that, you know, Germans are just German. But in right. reality, there's tons and tons of different regions of Germany that people identify themselves with. Like, for example, Bavarians. A Bavarian right. German is different than, you know, any other type of German because of their cultural history. And they made an effort to cast for that and represent a wide variety of German men at that time. And to me, that shows a certain level of respect and introspection on the part of the filmmakers. It also reminded me of like the German cast of Saving Private Ryan, because I didn't know any of these guys' names because they hardly ever call each other by name except for Johan. Yep. A few of them aren't even named. The captain never has a name. The first officer. Doesn't. Yeah, I, I was having a hard time. So I just started making nicknames for people. <laughs> Excellent. Let's hear them. We had Ed Sheeran's dad. <laughs> Which one was he? Oh, that was the, the correspondent, the uh, Leutnant. Leutnant. <laughs> Werner. Werner is his name. Lieutenant Werner. Yeah, Ver the one who looks like he's probably Ed Sheeran's dad. And that was his first role. That was his first acting role. Apparently he's a singer in Germany. For anybody who watches Ted Lasso, the chief was just Coach Beard. I really liked the chief, I gotta say. I love the chief. He's great. And he reminded me of like, so in Ted Lasso, there's a, uh, his assistant coach is named Coach Beard. And yes, he has a beard, but he's just like, he's his guy, you know, and that's he just reminded me of Coach Beard. And then, it's going to sound fucked up, but I kept calling him, like, Secret Mellish. Because he was the guy who reminded me of the Adam Goldberg character from Saving Private Ryan. But that guy, obviously very Jewish and wouldn't be allowed on this U-boat. Right. The second lieutenant. Oh, yes. The one who was, like, talking about the mold on the bread. I was like, this would be the Jewish guy in a American World War II. Yeah, he's another unnamed character. His name is Second Lieutenant. <laughs> yes, and all of the men on the boat, except for Jürgen Prochnow, are unknown actors. Cast for the first time in this role. Oh, and even Johan, whose name I did know. I kept calling him Theon Greyjoy. <laughs> Herbert Gronemeyer is Lieutenant Werner. He's the correspondent. That's weird. His last name's not Sheeran? No, it's Gronemeyer. I, again, I think it's a funny coincidence that he's a uh, musician. Yeah, well, that makes one of them. My biggest disappointment with this film, I didn't see one boot, let alone one that would be worth naming an entire film after it. <laughs> that's your joke of the episode? That is. That's my one. I get one. Liam's been waiting to drop that one. I have been. I will rep at least one other podcast. Well, first of all, Friendly Fire did an episode on this. You can go back and listen to that. But also, uh, one of the podcasts I go back to, especially because we didn't have research done on this one because of a variety of logistical issues. And so we did the research ourselves. Based on a true story, doesn't exclusively do war films, but they do a really good job of going through the history and it's really well footnoted. So I'll leave a lot of their notes in this but as good as that podcast is, the guy was saying 
das boot the entire time and i'm like just just ask a german friend it doesn't take that long it takes five seconds to learn then they're they're going into the mediterranean and they're like heading over towards italy and i was like oh that's the boot (laughs) now i get it that's the what they named the movie after weird choice if you ask me i think they tried to name this the boat in the u.s it just didn't stick they did when you look up on uh imdb das boot you mean Das Boot? Yeah, well, when you type in Das Boot, it comes up The Boat. B-O-O-T. It does. Right. It only references Das Boot as the <laughs> miniseries. This was one of those weird Minnesotan things for me. <laughs> I know our audience loves to hear these stupid colloquialisms of uh, the far north. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, you betcha. It's all Swedish and Norwegian. Nor Norgy Porgy is what my my in-laws call it. Boot and boat are two incredibly similar things. It's like in the South, pen and pin are indistinguishable. Yeah. They're both diphthongs and they're not. But in the South they are. Oh, and having taken a semester of German and and having lots of German relatives and like German culture was also a big thing here. It all kind of sounds the same to me at this point. Das Boot. Otherwise, it sounds overpronounced. Das Boot or Das Boat. For me, it's just Das Boot. I can't pronounce it right. Like, I either go boat or boot, and I, I can't find the middle ground. Right. So it seems like one of the things that's inevitable to get into about this film before we get too into the plot and the acting is the production design and the actual set design and costumes and all that that they did in this because that is pretty unanimously highly praised in this film including Buchheim himself who I think at one point must have actually walked around the full-sized mock-up of U96 and basically was he almost had PTSD from it in the sense that he was like yeah it feels just like the real thing now Essentially, so this is a Type 7 U-boat out of all the designs that they started off with in the 30s. And they had different capabilities. Some were mine layers, some were bigger, some were smaller. This is kind of their fast attack boat of the time. This is the Type 7C. And the production built two full-sized mock-ups of this. One for the exterior, which is really famous and we'll have a few bits of trivia on that but this is the one that you see pulling out of the port and pulling in at the end they built one full-sized exterior mock-up that floated but it was basically just a hull with the tower with the bridge at the top that a few actors could stand on and then like a light motor that could move it along or it could be towed they built like five of these damn things because they needed the one exterior model to do the full-size shots of they had a full mock-up of the interior where they're running around with the camera, and that was put on a gimbal even way back in 79 when they started filming this. A gimbal that was capable of moving in all directions up to 40 degrees, I think. So they could do all the shaking and knocking people around and gravity work of the inside on that gimbal. Nice. As well as they had a tower mock-up for the water spraying scenes, which if you pay attention, especially for the time... The projection work that is done to show the ocean and the horizon behind them with them getting sprayed by water uh, on the front end. Some of those are filmed on the water and some are not, but it all looks pretty good to me. 
And then they had several scale models that they did the underwater work with when they're in Gibraltar and they're getting depth charged and the diving scenes and some of the attack scenes. And all the storm scenes. That was the mm-hmm. other thing that they did. Yeah, a lot of that stuff was done on an 11 meter model with a dude in a wetsuit on the inside that was steering it and puking and that poor man pumping his puke out of the model. So, yeah, they did a ton of work to do different miniatures here and make everything look right i mean i was really impressed by all that as i think were most of the critics what'd you guys think about all that stuff i had two thoughts on the exteriors on the bridge one was how does this look better than the bridge scene in red october Mm -hmm. because i thought most of the time it was fairly obviously usually when they were in profile it was fairly obviously a, a rear projection Right. With like somebody off screen, like throwing buckets of water at them as, you know, like is is what it looked like. Right. I mean, kind of like in Mr. Roberts. Yeah. The second thought that I had was especially in those profile scenes on the bridge where you have like everybody lined up and like it felt very obviously a film there where it doesn't necessarily in the interior shots in the sub, especially when it's like. That camera's just fucking booking it down that mm-hmm. narrow passageway and through the tubes and through, I don't know what they call it, like portals or... Well, no, portals are windows. Or trying to like swing through like the... Hatch. The hatches. Thank you, Katie. Wow. You fucking stumped me on a naval term. I suck. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no, I agree that the interior set is the best looking one, but I'm just saying compared to other films we've seen, including more modern films, I think all of it looks pretty great. But I'm saying it's it looked a little bit like something that Wes Anderson would do, honestly. Why? Why? That's I, I would say that's because it kind of was, but not in a way that like Wes Anderson is mimicking this film because like. That set was made even before the movie had been optioned in in today's parlance. The studio, Bavarian Film Studios, I think it was called or something similar, purchased the rights after the book was released. And they like immediately started building like a full size replica of the sub. And so it does look really good. But... (laughs) It's also incredibly cramped, especially some of the scenes like that you might see in Moonrise Kingdom. Yes, it did have a kind of a Wes Anderson look in my mind because he uses the same kind of staging and camera tricks that honestly, a lot of European period films did. His inspirations usually go back further than like 1979 to 1981. But like this looked like a kind of analog technology that he would be very much into recreating. Yeah, I can see in particular um, the cinematographer in that documentary talked about like he wanted to take it from one end of the sub to the other and then back again. And that felt very Wes Anderson to me, like how in touch the cinematographer was with making you uh, understand this space, Mm -hmm. which is something Wes Anderson is very invested in and making you get like what your surroundings look like if you're sitting in the film and looking around, you know, and this film thrives on that. Like if you don't have that sense of atmosphere, the movie is not going to work. And it's great that the cinematographer 
did a lot of things that Wes Anderson does where like finding a way to film the shot from like the corner where you're tucking yourself in all super mm-hmm. tight just to get this right look in this right stage. Like that's totally something he would do. And that's something that almost all of the shots do in this movie. Okay. I think that's like five times you guys have mentioned Wes Anderson. If I think we're we're done or I'm canceling the podcast. That's like <laughs> One more, one more time and that's it i'm burning i'm burning this whole building down <laughs> don't burn the building down don't office space it no i'm just kidding no but this is a good time to mention uh so the dp is yost vacano mm-hmm. who has apparently worked with uh, paul verhoven a lot as well and i don't know which shot or whether it made it into this version of the film but initially they did the classic sort of removable panel thing mm-hmm. where they were able to shoot the inside of the sub from outside of the wall of the sub and both him and Peterson, the director, decided that it didn't feel right and they didn't want the audience to lose that sense of intimacy that you were in this sub with them. Now, another thing that should be mentioned is that the interior mock-up is just slightly wider, I forget by how much, than the original U-boat from the time. So they gave themselves a little bit of leeway to work with, but not very much. Like three extra inches, maybe. Yeah, like maybe a foot or something. So he was the cinematographer for Starship Troopers and Robocop. Oh! (laughs) If I had to try and guess the two best for Hoban films, those are them. And Showgirls! (laughs) Awesome. So are we doing Showgirls on a Main feed, showgirls, we're all agreed, right? <laughs> he did He did Das Boot, Showgirls, Starship Troopers, Hollow Man, apparently, is how he's credited. We're just going to start playing the Kevin Bacon game where, like, if anyone on the crew has ever worked on a war film, now any other film they do can be used as a war film. <laughs> now every film can be traced back to Paul Verhoeven. No, but I, I think uh, the DP, Vacano, was... Clearly, the director cared about his opinion, and I think he's mostly responsible for forcing the claustrophobic feel of having the camera be in there with the characters running through the length of the sub. So he built his own gyros to create a Steadicam version of the small handheld that he used. He really is on the record as loving handheld camera. But he needed to stabilize it. So he built a couple of gyros, stabilized the camera. And then after hitting his head for the third or fourth time, trying to go through the hatches, he basically wore a helmet and started wearing body pads. Because basically it was like, yeah, you just have to grab the camera and run through the sub with these people. So it's a very active type of cinematography. And he's on the record in the documentary saying that his creative goals were restrictive in nature. Quote, the camera has to be squeezed into a tight space and be limited in space, just like the people who are in there. The camera's not allowed to leave that space at any point. It must physically stay there. We thought in the beginning we might kill ourselves after a few weeks because it's such a small space. Right? And it was shot in sequence. The actors got more and more really into it, into their part. And that's another thing is, uh, I guess in some ways it makes things easier and in other ways it makes things harder. But because they're going from fresh shaven young boys at the beginning to sort of bearded, wore out, dirty dudes at the end, most of it was shot in sequence. The few exceptions, uh, I think they actually did have to put on some fake beards to reshoot a few scenes here and there. But mostly... The interior shots are done in sequence, so you can really get used to it. And there was a lot of authenticity to that in ways that I don't know they necessarily planned, but it just happened that way. So 
the moldy bread, for example, they injected a mold into the middle of it so that by the time they cracked the bread open, it would have this green mold on the inside. But I don't think they use props for any of the food. So all the bananas, all of the meat that's hanging from the ceiling is all real. And one of the actresses on record is saying, yeah, so after a month, the meat started rotting, which was very authentic, but very disgusting. And by the time they were flooding that set with water, the water was really gross. And one of the actors even brought like a bottle of cologne and dumped it in there because mm-hmm. it, like, it just made it a little more tolerable. But yeah, things <laughs> got really gross really fast in there. And most of that is not fake. Yuck. They get gross with it. The the hairy meat, I was like, what the shit are they eating right now? Like, I'm glad that they dropped in some dialogue being like, oh, I should have shaved that pig. Needs to shave this meat, does Because I'm like, why is your meat growing hair? Because it was pickled that way. Mm, no. Is that what it was? Okay, it was unclear to me. I was like, is this a special kind of mold that's growing right now or fungus or that's just no it's a it's potted pork where they didn't take the time to remove the bristles on the outside edge of the skin okay that makes sense that's what pig skin looks like if you've ever been to the state fair in minnesota you can go and pet a pig oh all the time every year i never miss it you can go and pet a pig and that is exactly what a pig skin looks like well, then I'm not petting that pig because that looked gross. I, I mean, it's different when they're alive, when they're all soft. And I was going to say, if it's still on the pig, it's not as and bad. Soft and happy. And usually uh, when you see those pigs, they're like suckling a bunch of piglets. So it's it's cute. Yeah. On the plate, it looked like something out of a science fiction movie. I was like, oh, this is really gross. Yes, it did. Yeah. And then the the Hitler youth guy, the, the dickhead, oh. is just there like slowly cutting off the top layer of his meat and they're all like i am judging you just eat it honestly like that was the one time i felt it was fairly relatable well not even so much relatable because i would be freaking out if you served me hairy meat uh but the fact that he's just like "Eh, and i'm not gonna eat that part like he was too calm about it which is what i found unrelatable (laughs) he was just like and i'm just gonna take off this top hair piece then i'm gonna set it neatly over on the side of my plate with my knife and my fork so my hands don't touch it. I would not be that put together. Yeah, and also, where are you putting it after that? Because I'm not... They never went into detail or explained. So the boat's supposed to have two bathrooms on board, one of which they just filled with provisions because they didn't have enough space, and so they have one toilet left. So I'm assuming there's a pump system that just pumps that stuff out of the boat. Yeah, the bilge. I'm not really sure what they did with garbage and leftover pig skin with hair on it. But there's a chance that some of that stuff just kind of sat on board. Uh, so, yeah, I don't I don't think they're as good as NASA at getting rid of the stuff you don't want on board, which is why things got so gross after a while. So gross. You know, funny you mentioned I, another movie that I was thinking of while I was watching this was Apollo 13. Oh, Oh, I get that. It had that kind of vibe of like, Jesus Christ, now what's going wrong? Especially with um, the chief. He would be the Gary Sinise character in Apollo 13, except he was actually on it. 
they're going through with the depth charges and all of this damage is happening to the ship and the chief is like, I I can fix it. I can make it work, I swear to God. And then 16 hours later, when they're all almost dying of oxygen deprivation, like, he he manages to fix it. That I totally get was an Apollo 13 moment of like, I'm like, this guy's just a fucking wizard. Yeah, except the the difference being you don't have a whole team of people back home radioing in like, here's the best way to fix this. It's just like, here you go. Also, this place is flooding. Also, you're running out of oxygen. Also, they're bombing you. And thank God you're not claustrophobic because you have to climb into that tiny ass crawl space and like slide down there like a mechanic. I was just like, nope, nope, hard pass. I don't think you're going to make it as claustrophobic in um, a submarine. Right. But I mean, like in a claustrophobic space. He got into the most claustrophobic space that you could imagine in a place that's already a claustrophobe's nightmares. I feel like this has come up recently, Liam, but you don't meet the uh, maximum size requirements for service on a sub. <laughs> I know. I, I'm too tall and too fat to be on a submarine. I wasn't going to put it that way. I'm just you're just too large of a human. I'll put it that way. There's a submarine here in Pittsburgh outside of the Carnegie Science Center. That you can like go tour this decommissioned submarine and I don't go on it because I don't fit. I'm the size of people that they want in subs. And you know what? If they put me on a sub, I'd panic because I do not like closed spaces. Listen, Liam, this thing is perfect for you. All right. You're hot bunking, so you don't ever have to worry about crawling into a cold bed because that thing is warm every time you get into it. You've got all the canned hairy pork that you can eat, and you can go like 44 days without being exposed to sunlight. So I think this is... See, that's the thing that made me think, hey, maybe submarines are my shit. (laughs) They're like, look, say goodbye to the sunlight. All right, sweet. That's fine. Dude, that would be great. If I could just find a job that would let me do that in a space that's built for me. As long as they give me my my lamp that... Keeps my vitamin D going. No, I don't even need that vitamin D. Oh, yeah. Did you guys notice all the uh, how much they're eating lemons? Yes. Which is all scurvy prevention. I was wondering, I was like, where are they getting all these fresh lemons? Like, lemons can last a long time, but not that fucking long. And then I see they're eating canned, like, preserved lemons. And I was like, oh, no. There you go. This is where the term uh, limey comes from. Yes. For British sailors. It's because there was a mandatory minimum ration of limes. That sailors had to be issued so you would get the vitamin C to avoid getting scurvy. This is not a great segue, but the last thing I was going to say about the production. Segways are weird. Is So the one thing I found cool that even after I read about it, I was like, I don't really notice it, is they weren't able to record any of the sound in the interior shots. Because the camera and the equipment was too loud. So that's all ADR. Which is remarkable. Right? I mean... I think it was pretty obvious. I assumed it was all ADR. Yes. Oh, really? I I was surprised when I found that when I found that out. I just have an ear for it where it just does not sound natural to me. But you guys watch this in German, right? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So even in the German, you could tell... Even in the German, I was like, oh, this is all ADR. And that's a me thing, not a this isn't a good quality ADR. Like, they match up the sound. Everything looks good. It's just there's that little disconnect between the sound editing and the 
voice recording that's off. Well, you got a better ear for it than I do because I did not notice it even after I knew about it. I notice it mostly when it doesn't quite line up with the lips. Even right. if it's off just like a just a little fraction I noticed. So they did a a really nice job with that editing it together. Oh yeah. It was it was very well done. It's just it's one of those things that I can I can just hear ADR no matter what. And I know what you're talking about. I I pick up on the sound difference when it's not all done in ADR. And I think that's why they were so successful with it because you can hear it very clearly and painfully sometimes when it's a line that they had to ADR when they weren't ADRing everything else like that sticks out like a sore thumb, but it, it really didn't occur to me because all of it was ADR. I agree. It is much easier to tell when it's one, but I think that's part of the reason why they did so well at the Oscars is that the basic production of this film is so fucking competent beyond competent it is mm-hmm. it is really really great and competent is like if you can make this kind of movie with these constraints and still pull it off i think you probably deserve at least a little bit of a nod but the fact that it was nominated for directing screenplay cinematography editing and sound are such a comment on the quality of the film and the sound effects in this are Barn on some of the best I've heard for this era. How well it's mixed. Yeah, great surround sound, great foley. A lot of the pressure from diving. The crunching noises. Yeah, the crunching noises. That's done with bags of, I think, either baking soda or, yeah, I think baking soda just being pushed against the soundboard slowly. And they show you that in the documentary, which I thought was great. Cause I'm like, Oh yeah, I'm really familiar with that sound. It's just mm-hmm. when you amplify it, it can give you this effect of like the tin can being crushed. Kind of weird thing about the editing for me though, because the, the going from one shot to another within a scene and all of the handheld stuff, I think was very, very good where the editing fell apart a little bit for me is I think in the cutting from a longer piece down to a shorter piece. And some of those like cuts to like the next scene I felt were a little jarring or sometimes suddenly there was an explosion and I was like, Oh, that cut was weird. Did you guys feel that at all? Some of that editing, at least of the director's cut, I don't know how the original theatrical played. But some of that felt a little bit clunky to me. It definitely felt like it was it was cut down from something bigger. Yeah. You know, in some of those moments, it felt like this scene continues in another world. Whereas here, it's served its purpose so we can cut it off and move on to the next thing. Right. Not too many. I think they did a, pr- a real good job. Yeah. And again, it was normally when it was like going to the next thing. When you were in like a stretch of time when they were trying to get away from that one destroyer. Right. Or they're having this long emotional dialogue. Right. Those things were all very good. But then like when it would go to the next thing, especially if the next thing was actiony as well, but was a distinctly separate event. I thought those were a little rough. Yeah. I didn't notice it. Other than just kind of the old school technique of a lot of fade outs where a lot of the editing is done with a fade out, which is just 
not my favorite thing and a little basic, but it, it wasn't jarring to me. Another funny thing was my viewing experience was a little strange because the copy that I rented, and I don't know if this is the case for you guys, but I could only get the English subtitles on with closed captioning. I think that was my case too. Yes. It, it would get like a lot of like the hull creaking in parentheses oh, popping yes. up on the on the screen rivets popping i think was the big one yeah which uh sighing wearily you know <laughs> oh God, that one was regular too yeah yeah there was a lot of that closed caption was getting a lot of mileage uh <laughs> because there's a lot of weary sighing in this movie but there were times that that was really annoying to me and times that i was kind of like it just sort of like melded into the background like any other subtitle really would. And I was almost kind of grateful for it in some places where I was like, what the fuck is that? Is that a noise I'm supposed to be paying attention to? And I didn't have to worry about if it was a noise I was supposed to be paying attention to because it would tell me. Exactly. So, exactly. It keeps you informed. So I, I was like, I don't know if I'm really getting the full effect of these sounds because I'm having them highlighted for me by this little subtitle at the bottom. Right. It's funny, and again, this is our second film in a row where we've had to deal with this, but there's just no comparison to the original language thing where you understand the original language and can just watch the film as it was intended to watch. Because while I think the three of us are in agreement that original language with subtitles is best, it also means you're reading a lot and your eyes are getting pulled away from certain details, which is just never going to be the same thing. And then if you watch it dubbed, which... It sucks. Well, that can also be distracting. Like you, you can pay right. attention yes. to the sound effects more, but sometimes the lips being completely off of the language pulls you out where you're like, oh, wait, I, you know, or maybe you're, if you understand the language a little bit, you're starting to see words that they are saying in the German or in the French or whatever you're watching. So it's just not going to be a perfect thing. And there is that. Speaking of <laughs> rivets popping, I went through all of the trivia and goofs on this and as per usual, I don't find most of the goofs worth mentioning because they're little continuity things and little things that are boring. But one of them I found kind of hilarious because as we know, especially in war film groups, people who pay a lot of, t of attention to goof details, especially like when something's off by a year, tend to be called rivet counters. And in this particular case, the scene with the rivets popping and shooting everywhere betrays the fact that in reality, the pressure hull of the Type 7C U-boat, which is what this is, the pressure hull was welded, not riveted, which is one of the reasons why it's actually able to survive depths of 220 meters plus. So I don't know if that counts for everything because some of the rivets and bolts seem to be popping off of like pipes not necessarily the outside pressure hull but i think that's pretty funny that some rivet counter was literally like there were no rivets all of them boat. all of them are too <laughs> all many of the rivets are wrong there were zero <laughs> rivets here and, and none of them are shown pinging off of the interior walls it's all off of something like the the clamps holding the tubes together that type of thing right it's the always shown to be that or whatever they're right Right. It's always shown to be something that's under pressure, but isn't the exterior walls of the sub. I mean, they, they did build a lot of this, the full scale model off of blueprints, like original blueprints that a museum had. So again, it is very accurate looking on the inside. Did I remember the dialogue correctly that they said that it was rated for 90 
meters. Mm-hmm. Why would that ship have only been rated for 90 meters? Well, 90 meters is pretty deep. That's the thing. It's- to prevent people from pushing it unnecessarily, I think. I guess, but I mean, like, obviously, that that boat can fuck with much deeper meters than that. Right, but they don't want you to necessarily test it to the point that clearly they do. Yeah, it's hanging out at like 280 meters at one point. And I was like, wow, really, uh, really came up short on those 90 meter guesses. Yeah. And again, a little bit of this is dramatization for the movie in real life. So they were spotted like 12 times in the Strait of Gibraltar. Like (laughs) they were spotted and having to descend a lot. Just up and down, up and down, like a Catholic mass. They were only attacked once or twice, but... At one point, the real captain, who we haven't mentioned by name yet, and we probably should. Again, this is based on the real captain of U-96, Captain Lieutenant Lehman Villenbrock. And he was one of the two consultants on the film. So him and I believe the first or second lieutenant were actually on set to consult. And so clearly some of the things are dramatized and they either were overruled or didn't comment on it the way the author kind of complained about, you know, he thought that the lewd conversation about sex was more unprofessional than what he saw on the boat. But at the same time, the author was an outsider. He wasn't really a Kriegsmarine sailor. So it's kind of like you have to wonder how much were the sailors adjusting their behavior and their conversation when he was in that part of the boat? So he was Ed Sheeran? Correct. Okay. He is the Ed Sheeran's dad character. Yes. I know you hate that I call him that. I can see it on your face. <laughs> no, no, it's fine. But he's compla- he complained about like the sexy dance scene and drag. Basically, he thought that the Kriegsmarine sailors never acted to that level of unprofessionalism at any point in terms of the uniforms being so relaxed, the dancing around, the- that kind of thing. And I have to say, sailors are sailors are sailors. That's what I'm thinking. Also, 19-year-old men slash boys are what they are, and I would be shocked if they're not having these discussions about, like, I'm going to get laid at the next port, I'm going to fuck, you know, whatever. Like, that, that seems absolutely ridiculous that they wouldn't be engaging in that, even, especially clandestinely. Where it's like, oh, they're just playing poker with each other. They're going to have these kinds of discussions. Yeah. And again, they're going to moderate them differently, probably whether when there's a reporter in their midst versus when there's not. Right. Especially when there's a reporter in your midst who is reporting to the propaganda part of Germany and your commander has said, act accordingly as heroes of Germany. Right. Then you're going to throw a oil soaked rag towel in his face the author was very pissed about that he said absolutely there's no way an officer of the time would have been disrespected openly like that and i'll take him at his word on that particular incident but also the character having the oil so rag thrown in his face is representing him as a composite character some kind of like maybe you're just mad that the dude that's supposed to be you is getting an oil so rag thrown in his face but yeah i get what he's saying in terms of the discipline and it's quite possible that both the anti-nazi sentiment and the discipline were exaggerated for drama in the film agreed 
I really want to make sure we talk about the acting in this because other than Jürgen Prochnow, almost all of these actors, this is their first film. They purposefully went around and found people and we get some of the best like first performances from an entire cast I've ever seen. All of these men are giving their all and it really worked so well for me in, in a way that if you'd said, oh, these are all newbies, I would not have expected. I mean, they're so dedicated. They're so intense about it. And they're so willing to throw everything they have behind this performance that it doesn't feel like they should be newbies. You know, and and several of them went on to become like big German actors. And Jürgen Prochnow was already a big German actor and then went on to have a Hollywood career. Playing German guys in American films. Exactly. And he deserved better because Jesus, is he great? Oh, yeah. Very, very good. And I'm not even sure, Katie, if at this point he may also have been considered no name, just less of a no name than everybody else. But I don't know that he was famous at the time, right? In 79? He would have been famous only in like... In Germany? In, in the world of German acting. Okay. Like that's all he had done at that point. But he he had done at least 20 different roles at this point. And they really wanted him. But he is like 10 years older than the actual captain of the boat. Yeah, I was going to bring that up. Prochnow was uh, 38 to 40 during the three years of filming here, and the original Captain Lieutenant was 30, which, you know, the German nickname for the captain is also the old man, which is kind of just the standard nickname for the captain. So he's generally supposed to be the eldest person on board, but like we've seen in many, many military movies, they're always younger than what they're portrayed in the movie. So I would say within the realm of war films and how much older actors are often portraying people, you know, eight eight to ten years is not too bad. Yeah, eight years is not too egregious. And this is still a world where in the 1940s, you still have, like, you don't go to high school. High school isn't a thing except for the very rich. You go to grammar school and then you're getting a job at 11 or 12. Like adulthood is almost an entire generation backwards for a lot of these people from the poorer classes. If you're from the upper classes, you're definitely going to get more education than that. Yeah, I think especially towards this is 41, but I think towards the end of the war, you were starting to get 16, 17 year olds on these oh, yes. for sure. And 20 year old captains. Exactly. So it's interesting and I think we underestimate it now because we can't imagine the idea of a... Th- I can't imagine being the captain of a U-boat at 37. That sounds like a whole lot of panic attack inducing nonsense. But this guy really makes it work. And I don't think he feels old. It's not like Ernest Borgnine or something in some of the other films we've seen or um, Cagney. When we talked about Mr. Roberts, like mm-hmm. who felt much older than the role, like this guy feels very appropriate for where it fits in. Or even Henry Fonda and Mr. Roberts, who did feel a little, little elderly for the role he's playing in that film. I think the scarring on Prochnov's face also helps him out because it kind of yes. gives him plus or minus five years where you can't. Well, and we, we like to think of our sea captains as old and grizzled. Right. 
so I feel like when you're playing a, a, a forlorn sea captain, like a well-worn, kind of over it, but super competent, like, I don't think audiences are programmed to believe that from a from a younger actor. Right, which is a big reason why they're almost always older in the casting. So I have to give them a certain amount of leeway. Like, we laugh mm-hmm. at it a lot when, like, 50-year-old John Wayne shows up playing a 25-year-old dude. But, like, in a role like this, I think we would reject a 29, 30-year-old. Timothy Chalamet could not play this role. Right. Is what we're saying here. Right. No. But I, I do think that... It works better the more beard he has because he looks younger the more beard he has. Oh, really? <laughs> yes, yes. Because when he's he's close shaven, he's got um, a lot of pock marks and scars mm-hmm. and wrinkles, and so you can kind of tell his age. And that would definitely be something of the modern era where we're getting that more high definition footage. At the sure. time, they definitely wouldn't have seen that. Right, but. As he, as he gets his beard, it kind of obscures all of that, and he feels a little bit younger. And he just really perfectly captures the, I am entirely over this, Captain, where you're just expected to make it work. And he's had to do it so many times. Yeah, this is supposed to be his seventh or ninth patrol out at sea or something like that. I think him and the chief engineer deliver this particular brand of acting the best. Oh. The whole, we've got shit going on at home, especially the chief whose wife is clearly sick or he's got something going on at home that's distracting him. His name is Klaus Veneman. Yes, thank you. Another unnamed character. I'm pretty sure the character is just the chief. It's chief engineer Fritz Grad. Okay, did he get a name? He did get a name. He's one of the few. And that's the other thing about this particular film. It's not just the acting choices the actors make, but it's the decisions that the director and cinematographer made in spending so much time on their faces up close, especially during times of stress, when they're diving, when they're being attacked, like all of those things are going on. And I think the captain and the chief show the most subtlety in their acting where they're doing a lot with their eyes. I mean, there are scenes where the captain is literally shaking and you can see his face shaking. And I was like, Mm -hmm. how did he do that? That's so good. But he's still being contained and he's still showing a stiff upper lip and a a strong uh, appearance to his sailors. Whereas some of the other performances like Johan literally tries to like walk out of the U-boat like walk up the ladder and open the hatch because he has just lost his mind. You know, that acting's a bit over the top and not in a bad way. Like he did a really great job and I think it's really affecting. I'm just saying, I think that's where the author complained that he thought the acting was overly dramatic and over-exaggerated. I don't think you could say that about the captain and the chief. I think a lot of their acting is very subtle. In particular, the scene where they are re uh, resupplying at Vigo. Mm. And he has to go and pretend to be super professional, man. Such a great scene. And uh, the, what do they call it? The the political guy is mistaken for the captain because he's wearing the fisherman's sweater. You are most welcome, Captain Lieutenant. No, no, please. 
This is... This is a commander. My apologies, sir. I... <laughs> a pleasure to have you aboard the Vesa, uh, Captain Lieutenant. Oh yeah, the the Nazi the it's, no, he's the the he's the first lieutenant, right? Uh-huh. Uh-huh. I I thought that he was the arm of the secret police. No, I think he's just a true believer. He just happens to be a Nazi, but he is the first lieutenant, yeah. Oh, okay. He's an actual Nazi as opposed to just I'm in the German military. Yeah, he's like the the first lieutenant, but it's like if your first lieutenant were also like just a dickhead. He was like a boy scout and he like, you know, grew up to just, you know what I mean? Like was bought in 100%. That scene where the captain is incredibly quiet. He's too quiet. Like this guy's giving him all this praise. Oh, you're such a hero. Oh, you did this. Try this amazing stolen. And, and I was like, I'll have that stolen. And then it was really gross because he took two bites off that cake and put it back on the fucking tray. And it was like, gross, dude. Gross. I got to tell you, that was one of the scenes. So as is right and proper, because Nazis deserve to be shit on. I've shot on the Nazi an awful lot. Like that first lieutenant. He's as we should. With what the, the friendly fire guys would have referred to as first lieutenant begging to be fragged is his role in this. But I also found it really interesting that especially in that dinner scene later when they're on the boat, he's kind of cool now. Like he's not cool, cool, but like he's got a little bit of a beard growing in. He's like one of the gang. He's loosened up a little bit. Yeah. Towards the end. Mm -hmm. He's walking this weird line where like, he still knows how to speak properly and politically to these political figures. Right. But he also knows that, the guys that he is a part of now, that's that's not how they're going to be able to handle this situation. So he kind of puts himself in there as like the interpreter for them to smooth things over. Yeah, he's like representing the boat. He's like in the official uniform. He's like, hey, guys, it's cool. He's representing the boat without without being shitty about it. Like he's not apologizing for how they're doing it. You know, and it's it's a kind of a trope that you'll see in other movies, even things like. I don't know, even things like American Graffiti when Ron Howard is like trying to like distract the the owner of the the No, you're totally right. Arcade where they're robbing the they're robbing him in the other room and he's just like saying the things that's supposed to be done. It's the trusted guy. Mm-hmm. Yeah, exactly. Hey, look over here. Well, everyone else in the American Graffiti context makes off with it, whereas in this context it's you stop harassing people who are experiencing ongoing PTSD right now yeah it's like one makes a fart joke and then he's like there are certain situations where the discipline has to be so strict yes and everybody has to be so quiet okay yeah and sehr still wenn gerade keiner furzt wie bitte wenn gerade weil der zwei mir umeint and then the guy's like oh i get the fart joke fart joke ha <laughs> and it's like and then they all share a laugh <laughs> i think for me one of the most poignant moments is when they are in vigo where the commanding officer is just giving the captain all this praise oh you're a hero all of this and you see 
his face. You see the captain's face just <laughs> it's so great. I am ready to stab you because you don't get it, especially when the guy is talking about like, oh, yeah, we got plenty of food and plenty of fuel. It's fine. Life's not that easy here. But, you know, we do have plenty of food and gas and beans. I'm like, oh, my God, that dude is going to stab you. And, and you just, we just have a hard time getting those torpedoes. Ha ha ha. When we've just been seeing them go through like, all right, well, we're eating. We're, we're picking through to find the non moldy bread and eating canned lemons and all this shit. We're eating pigs with hair still on it exactly and that's and the camera work really sells it when you walk into that scene it's like i can't remember if the door the double doors are already open or if they open in front of the camera but it's like as soon as it opens up it's like red carpet and pineapples and figs and it, it's like a oh banquet it's almost to the level of the christmas carol where you see the ghost mm-hmm. of uh, Christmas future and it's just like banquet table everywhere you know well it's kind of like in Lawrence of Arabia when Peter O'Toole shows up with the guy from the desert and like they're going to the officers club and everybody's like what the fuck is wrong with you why are you dressed like that why are you dirty yeah and these guys are just like as filthy as human beings can be just walking into this very like the the contrast between them and yeah these- the contrast is very apparent yeah it's it's grading well and here's the point where it hit for me is when when the commander talks about we have these sausages fresh stuffed today of course right (laughs) oh yeah of course of course i mean like i'm not eating a sausage that was stuffed three days ago yeah like fuck you don't give me yesterday's sausages (laughs) what do you take me for a sausage a thing that in my american mind is like well don't you want to age the sausage? Apparently, no. No, you want the fresh stuff shit. Okay, so in, in his defense, when I was down in Miami, I ate at a restaurant where I had blood sausage. Mm. That's different. I cut it open and it just poured out deliciously and grotesquely across the plate. And it was just, oh man, because normally you get it and it's aged and it like you can cut it into wheels and shit. Mm-hmm. But like this was like fresh blood sausage and jesus christ it was good it was just such an example of the decadence of like oh of course this is this is true hardship is the idea that we might not get fresh sausage when these men are experiencing such hardship right before we got here everything was literally going to crush us to death so right the acting of Prochnow is just so subtle and so perfect and i have to bring it back to some of the scenes in the blue max jeremy kemp's character as Mm. willie von klugerman has this same gravitas where they are understanding of the costs of what they're doing and still respectful of it and in the captain's case, willing to respect everyone, no matter where they fucking come from, who's doing it. Cause he's seen all of these like 19 year old boys come up. And as he says to Werner, Lieutenant Werner in the beginning of the movie, wait till they've grown their beards, then take pictures of them. <laughs> so I was going to bring that up, Katie, and I'm glad you did because I was paying attention to the literal performance of that scene where The captain comments to the reporter towards the beginning. Better to take photos on our return from the mission. Not when we are going out. 
What do you mean? They'll have grown beards by then. Because it would just look better. And I don't know if you guys caught this, and or maybe I'm making it up, but in my mind, I thought there was a little more to this in the background than what he was actually letting on. And what I got out of the scene was maybe the captain is actually wanting to have the reporters show the sort of come and see faces of the crew to the public not the we're all happy we're enthusiastic we're going to war for germany he wanted to show some of the ptsd and some of the exhaustion and some of the dirt on their faces coming back but if that is the case that was all delivered without any exposition and non-verbally and it's just something i felt in the background is that just me or did you guys catch a whiff of that no, I totally get you. Okay. Agreed. What he said was what struck me a little bit weird and telling about the 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 character. If I'm remembering correctly, wasn't his reasoning that it would shame the English to see them be beat by these boys without beards? The British will be ashamed if they see the shaven faces of the enemy. Pale-faced kids. Innocent strike from Mama's skirt. Yeah, that's a whole other layer to it. Yes. That's such a strange and I think from a character standpoint telling you want to beat them, but you don't want to shame them. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. That's so strange to me. It's like, don't spike the ball. You want to do it honorably where you are not taking advantage of anything. You are setting up strength for strength, match for match, and you are showing your superiority through those things rather than having an unfair advantage. That's definitely what it feels like. And that is consistent with not just the captain's character, but the officers in general, is there's this old school feeling of chivalry and sort of like war has rules type of thing. And you see this when they surface to see the damage on the freighter that they're sinking, Mm -hmm. where they give it the knockout punch and then they realize the sailors are still on it and they're on fire jumping off of the ship. And the captain is horrified. Why didn't their own ships rescue them? For the love of God. They've had six hours. He's not trying to shoot a torpedo into a ship full of guys. He's just trying to sink the ship. Yes. He wants those guys to be rescued. And then, of course, once he realizes there is no other ship around, they have to retreat because, like, they already have double the crew that their sub is designed to carry in the first place. They can't take any POWs. And so I think that scene also reinforces sort of the internal morality of the captain in particular but you know the other guy starts crying like all those officers are pretty distraught by that scene they can imagine themselves there it's that they're not they're not inhuman monsters that's the biggest thing throughout this film is that it's meant to humanize these men you can see the horror on the captain's face when he realizes because there were multiple boats around them when they sank that ship that could have come and rescued those men in his mind anyway. Right. He's indignant. He's like angry at the British for not rescuing them. How dare you? Exactly. And that he follows his orders, which is, and again, like, well, I don't have the food or space or anything. Plus, this was during the time when the Enigma machine had not been cracked by the British. How cool was it to see them using the Enigma, though? I know, right? It was so amazing. 
that would have been absolute number one priority to keep secret because it was, you know, the heart of their communication system. But it's just so indicative of how he feels. He doesn't just, ah, fuck these guys. He's not a nationalist. He is just a sailor. And to him, it's offensive that a country would allow its sailors to die purely because they didn't want to go pick them up. Yeah. But he can't pick them up because it means sacrificing his own men. Yeah, it's very difficult to not root for the character of the captain or at least sympathize with him a lot on a human level because he seems to be, for lack of better words, a a good person. Which is awkward and weird and hard. I know. It's like you see those those things online from time to time where it's like, all right, you have like. $20 to build your team. And it's like the top row is all like $5 people. And then it's like $4, three $3. Usually you do with like star Wars characters or game of Thrones characters, like something like that. But I was like, if you were trying to build your ultimate, like naval team, I'd take this guy over Sean Connery from the hunt for red October. Yeah, probably like this guy's a good captain. He cares. Is he the best captain we've seen in this so far? Ooh, that's like that's a good meta question for the podcast. Is this the best captain we have seen so far? Is this the best naval captain that we've seen in a war movie? In the naval films we've covered, I would say he's pretty fucking good and way better than anyone we've seen so far. Right. Cuz even Sean Connery like Oh, wait. Wait a minute. We've done Master and Commander. It's it's hard to fucking beat that captain. Oh, man, it's so (laughs) tough. It's so, yeah, like, right? I suppose. But, I mean, he's like fucking Jack Aubrey level. Especially, and he's not a Nazi, so you don't have that, you know? That's true. That's true. He's Jack Aubrey level, though. Like, he's he's up there. He's just a British colonizer, which is like two levels below Nazi. Yeah. Eh, They taught... (laughs) uh, I'm gonna get in trouble. (laughs) We don't talk about the Boer War. But yeah, no, I mean, like, he's a really good captain. He is. I spent a lot of, like, the mid-2000s, 2005 to 2010, watching a lot of the new, the new, uh, the reboot of Battlestar Galactica, Mm -hmm. which I think takes a lot of its DNA from this movie, honestly. I can see that. Because I feel like... The Edward James Almost character is modeled in a lot of ways off of this captain. And also there was an entire episode where they were just being perpetually chased and harassed over and over and over again without rest for days on end, which this movie had scenes that reminded me of that. I think this has a blueprint for a lot of the things that we like in both our naval films and our spaceship stories films tv shows yeah i could definitely see that this is such a i mean that's a whole nother episode but getting beyond the captain's characters driving motivations it's definitely something that we then see later on in science fiction and i will say as someone who's read a lot of science fiction german writers from the 70s 80s 90s and beyond This kind of representation really lives on in science fiction and in particular military sci-fi, which I have read a lot of. 
and the military sci-fi of the noble commander who is doing their best for not just their crew, but for the country and all of that. And like, this is a great personification of that. And I appreciate it. Yeah, I think, uh, I don't know if it's going to be like episode 100 or something, but we may have to have a meta episode where we just do a captain's episode where we compare all the captains that we've covered. <laughs> oh my God. We should do that. It might have to be a Patreon episode, but that would be pretty fun. Since Liam brought up Edward James Olmos, I have to throw in my almost every episode mandatory Blade Runner reference. <laughs> Rutger Hauer was offered the role of the captain in this. Shut the fuck up. I've seen things you people wouldn't believe. <laughs> when I picture it, I'm like, oh, that would have been amazing. But he took Blade Runner instead. And I'm like, oh, no contest. Had to take Blade Runner. <laughs> so I'm, I'm so conflicted because I'm like, I would love to see Rutger Hauer in this role. But I, not if it's at the cost of him and Blade Runner. Absolutely not. As I was watching it, I was like, this totally feels like a time frame co-movie with Blade Runner. It's just that Blade Runner is obviously English slash American. And this is very German. But they do feel very similar. It's going to be like nine more rounds before I get to pick another DCE episode. But uh, we're, we might be getting close to the point where we have to do Blade Runner. <laughs> oh, then we have to have Jamie on as a guest. Oh, yeah. Liam, I did want to ask you, based on your background, which everyone here should be familiar with at this point, at least in Act 3... Does this check the boxes for horror movie? Does this feel like a horror movie? Because based on the oppressive feel of everything that's happening on the boat in the Strait of Gibraltar when they're on the bottom and just the level of hopelessness and fear that they're able to reach. I was like, at this point, this has devolved into a horror movie. What do you think about that? So it definitely checks a few boxes. And I don't just think in the third act. Okay. I think in... Any of the scenes where they're listening to the destroyer approach and then the bombs are dropping like that is set up very much in a way that a lot of horror movies, good horror movies operate, whether it's a slasher that's like coming to kill you or in my personal favorite horror movie, The Haunting, the old one from the 60s. You know, you hear like the ghost knocking on the walls and it's slowly getting closer and closer and things like that, you know, and it's, it's that kind of auditory where like they're trapped. They can't do much, if anything. Now, as far as on Fright Pub, would this qualify as a horror movie? It would be a very interesting conversation, you know, because we look for things like elements of the grotesque. Was it intended to be a horror movie? Would you fuck to it at a Halloween party? I think it fails at that one, but uh, it fails. It fails at that one. I'm just saying. I mean, you might get that like the first 15 minutes, maybe as a starter. The party, they're the party. You could fuck to that, but party. then you gotta cut it off at that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You you gotta you have to start paying attention. Once the canned pig with hairs on it comes out, you gotta stop fucking. No, no, no. Even before that, before bro gets on stage and like cuts the top off the champagne, like mm -mm -mm, that's too awkward. Yeah, no, you could totally fuck to the like first five minutes of this movie. <laughs> no. But, so between. Wait, hold on. You fucked to horror movies on a regular basis. I'm, I'm confused now. <laughs> College was weird. Don't ask. 
Yeah. So the, the, no, like something that like at a Halloween college makeout party would be playing in the background. This movie, not so much. So it fails that one. But you know, the, the protagonist's primary motivation is one of fear. There are scenes where that is the case. Are you afraid for the main character? Yes, absolutely. So again, it, it walks kind of a fine line. There are scenes and honestly, entire half hour sections of this three hour, three and a half hour movie that taken on their own, you could take them out of this movie and put them into a horror movie and it would just scan perfectly without any interruption. But you could say the same thing. Honestly, it, there are parts of this reminded me of the, the first episode or two of Chernobyl. Hmm. Um, very much like bordering on, on a horror movie. So, yeah, I mean, sometimes that's, that's the best shit is, is the stuff that is, you know, like taken from real life and you see real life situations that are made to scare you. We referenced it a little bit earlier, earlier in the episode, but we really can't get through this movie without talking about the ending. It's pretty jarring. I would think. What did you guys think about? So they they survive all of this shit when they're stuck on the bottom of the ocean and they are dying of CO2 poisoning and lack of oxygen and they almost drowned and are almost crushed and almost blown up and <laughs> a host of other things. And they make it home. They limp back to port and... As soon as they pull in, there's an air raid and these planes swoop in out of nowhere, bomb the port, bomb the ship, kill most of the men. And the last thing you see is the captain staring at the sub finally sinking. And then blood starts coming out of his mouth and he falls over dead. And Ed Sheeran's dad is sitting next to him mourning. What were your guys' thoughts? Because... Going into this movie, if you told me that pretty much everybody dies in it, I believe you, and I would think that they drowned. Nobody drowns in this movie, except those on-fire Englishmen who were jumping off the boat a few scenes earlier. I think it was the best way to end the film. So, as I was cruising on the YouTubes after watching this, looking for documentaries and shit, there was an alternate ending. In that alternate ending, they play, like... A rousing British patriotic song that is incredibly off for what's happening. Like, it's the exact same footage as the director's cut where, you know, you see all these people being bombed. You see the captain dying of shrapnel wounds. But they play Tipperary behind it? It's not Tipperary. It's it's like uh, Great Britannia. Da, 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 da. You can drop it in. It's fine. I don't have to sing the whole thing. <laughs> my husband knew what it was, but I don't know off the top of my head. So they play this classic British song that is meant to elicit all of these like, well, are the British wrong for doing this? Because obviously the French think they're wrong. And the film makes no bones about the fact that what they're the doing... Yeah, the French, because they're in... Um, La Rochelle. Yeah, they're oh, in sorry, La Rochelle. Okay. And while you see some French maidens being on board with it, like, 
they're not all about that. And as folks who are somewhat knowledgeable about the time, it doesn't make sense for the French to support the Germans. And having that rousing political British song playing in the background of all of this destruction is like hugely impactful. And I don't know if that's the ending I would have gone for. Like, I still felt like the ending that they had was pretty meaningful, but not in the same way of denouncing the activities of the men on board. I feel like that edit was very strong in denouncing their their patriotism. Especially considering that they were criticized by the German public for making a film that was too ambiguous at at the very most kind description in terms of supporting right not supporting but showing a sympathetic viewpoint on german soldiers slash sailors from this time exactly i can't imagine if they hadn't had everyone get killed at the end not to mention i think one of the most poignant parts of that which is the boat sinking in dock This is not historically accurate. So, again, this is based on a novel. It takes plenty of departures from the real history. I believe U-96 was actually eventually bombed and sunk later in 44 or something by the Allies. I think it was an American bombing. But clearly, the captain survived to be a consultant on this film. So, he died of old age and did not die in the way that is depicted in this film. And... You know, you mentioned the French Port and La Rochelle, which they Mm -hmm. did not, in real life, they were not based out of La Rochelle, but La Rochelle had these old World War II cement bunkers that were relatively untouched, but just aged by the late 70s. It's like a war memorial now. And so that's why they decided to actually change the location from the real life one, because they could film it. So it's, it's filmed in the town where it's set. And a lot of the extras were French. And the actors go into moments, especially, uh, I know Katie's seen it, but if you go watch the documentary, one of the actors goes, yeah, it was really weird being dressed up as a Nazi in France and filming these scenes where not necessarily everyone around spectating knew what was going on. They're just seeing a bunch of guys running around in Nazi uniforms or in German military uniforms. And at the end of the film, they're doing all of these pyrotechnics and explosions and bombs. But before then, one of the actors talks about how he said an old French guy who had clearly lived through this period in World War II just came up and started shoving me like physically shoving me and telling Mm -hmm. me to, I guess, get the fuck out. And he's like, I didn't know what to do. I just had to take it. I certainly couldn't shove him back. And, you know, this is a modern German who was born in the 60s or something, like had nothing to do with World War II. But it's like quite an interesting situation for a crew to be filming in. And Carl Baumgartner was a special vex guy that was in charge of all the explosions and they called him Charlie Boom Boom. Yes. Because <laughs> he was so good at his job and because he loved it so much and they were like, that was Charlie's hour where he rigged everything. And it's interesting because the actors are like, yeah, we sort of knew the generalities of what we were doing and which direction we were running and where the planes were going to come from, but we didn't know exactly where all of the pyrotechnics were. So some of the surprise you see of people running and being surprised by the explosions and falling down are real because we didn't know where all these explosions were. And I'm like, oh, the 80s when you could just do crazy ass shit and allow for some spontaneous reaction. Right. There were a couple of people in the in the aftermath that 
not quite patent bad where it's like you see like a dead body like grab his helmet and put it back on him and then go back to being a dead body but like not far off either right uh so there are a couple of moments like that that it was like you you need to die better yeah but i mean at the same time who knows with that budget which was a decent budget but like how many times were they able to redo that take like i get the feeling they only did it a couple of times and we just ran with it so it's like wasn't gonna be perfect but they went with what they went with oh for sure but no, yeah, it was, it was part of me didn't care anymore. Like when the air raid happened and I was like, oh, so they're going to die now that they're back at port. I was very nihilistic about the whole thing. I was like, well, this may as well happen. You didn't get crushed to death under the pressing weight of the entire ocean. So could have definitely been worse. I'd rather you die here. That's fine. I don't know if that's the mood that the filmmaker wanted me to have in that moment i don't know that it's not but it's the mood that i had yeah i think it's an appropriate ending now it's time for the breakdown where we ask ourselves what was the objective of this film was it on target and did we like it katie hmm So I think the objective of this film, you know, we're talking about 35 years after World War II, when this film gets made by a almost exclusively German production company and German production team. And from what I could learn from Wolfgang Peterson interviews, it really seems like it is trying to discuss the everyday Germans experience with submarine warfare and to a greater extent everyday germans experience with warfare in this conflict and it does the very very difficult thing of trying to elide the politics of the situation which isn't a thing i'm going to comment on right now but for an artistic purpose talking about these men's experiences especially in a submarine where you are under strict confines, claustrophobic environments constantly, very limited freedom and extreme demands, you know, like you don't even have your own bed in this situation. You are sharing a bed with like two to three other people. It is trying to give an accurate perspective on what those folks were feeling. And it's also trying to comment on, That these men are participating in what is essentially an evil regime. There was no justification for this war. Not in the way it was perpetrated. There was no excuses for what was happening, for the violence and the barbarity and everything that was going on. But this film is trying to give us a glimpse into what the average soldier is feeling, which is a valid point to have. And obviously, the higher-ups, the greater meaning of World War II was entirely about subjugation and destruction of quote-unquote undesirables. But the average everyday guy didn't know that. And I think that's really what this film is trying to get to. It's this weird, nitty-gritty, difficult thing to talk about that I think is entirely worth talking about, but you have to have a lot of nuance when doing so. And that's where we get into whether or not this was on target. 
which I think is really going to depend on your perspective. As I talked about, you know, the perspective of contemporary German audiences was like, no, you failed. This is not okay. We're not comfortable with this. Whereas everyone else was absolutely comfortable with it and, and found it to be of a deeper meaning. Obviously, decades and decades along now, I think it does a pretty good job of hitting that target. I think it tries really hard. It is not in any way condoning Nazi ideology. It is more talking about a military in general aspect of submarine warfare. And because this is a German story, it's talking about German submarine warfare. (sighs) Did I like it? Honestly, this was a film that, like, I liked more the longer I thought about it. Initially, it felt very uh, German New Wave, like, oh, my God, you're just taking so fucking long. You're so fucking long. And that's why I don't think I'll ever watch the longer version of this, because German New Wave is very well known for It's like we are going to stretch things out like fucking taffy and that works in some contexts you know i'm i'm a big fan of um fassbender rainier Werner fassbender who did a lot of different german new wave films that are in, oh, way overly long but in this i feel like this was the perfect length for it any longer and i wouldn't have been able to put up with it <laughs> Honestly. I would have watched that opening party scene for a lot longer is all I'm saying. The party scene is fine, but there are just so many moments and maybe maybe the longer scenes have a lot more going on, but it really stretches out moments that for me are like, all right, we didn't need to keep going this long on this. And so the longer I thought about it and I watched a documentary. I spent time thinking, you know, why did Wolfgang Peterson make these choices? Why did these actors do these things? And then it became far more satisfying and interesting to me. So I did like it. I do think it's worth watching, but I would start with the director's cut (laughs) because if that really interests you, then you might be interested in the longer version, but If this version isn't going to interest you, then the longer version will turn you off, like, immediately. I think it's worth a watch with that caveat. Liam? You know, I I didn't really think about all of the similarities between this movie and its existence and Gettysburg. Oh. In that was made to be a miniseries, but then they decided to release as a film and it's questionable normalization or potentially normalization of political and ideological standpoints that have and should continue to fall out of fashion. We, we blasted Gettysburg pretty hard. If memory serves, we did for, you know, perpetuating the myth of the lost cause. So I think in that we can, I, I can definitely see where the the contemporary German response was coming from. You know, you, you show Robert E. Lee in the golden hour with heroic music swelling behind him as his men cheer him. And it's, it's hard not to think that that is a case that that film is making for that person. So I can definitely see some of that in this, but I don't know if that's what the objective was. 
I think this is, well, first of all, a much better made film than Gettysburg. And I think the objective was not necessarily wrongheaded as the, the filmmakers of Gettysburg, I believe, were. It honestly, it does feel a little bit more Saving Private Ryan-y to me as far as its objective goes. You know, if your pap-pap served in World War II and you were a German and you loved your pap-pap and you wanted to depict what pap-pap went through, and as far as you know, pap-pap didn't really like Hitler that much. You know what I mean? Like, this is the kind of movie that you would make to try to tell, like you said, regular people's stories, but also to give a little bit of, I don't know, character examination for the people who were there and participating because they were just kind of like there and participating. You know what I mean? Like they, they, you know, it's not like, I don't know. You don't get the feel from any of these people. Like you see in so many American films, like after Pearl Harbor was bombed, they're like, yeah, we're going to go get them. Like there's, there's very little gung hoiness about, the cause in this movie. And maybe that's historically inaccurate, but it's a conscious choice that this film made. I think that maybe watching this so closely to the hunt for red October made it seem restrained to me. Like I almost appreciated how little it went out of its way to make these characters palatable to an audience in our time where it's like, Oh, well he's going to feel very hesitant to fire the torpedoes because he doesn't really believe in the Nazi cause. So he secretly wants the Nazis to fail. I could see a, a more compromised artistic vision or a worse filmmaker or a worse storyteller, especially if it were made from an American perspective like an American company trying to tell this story, trying to shoehorn weird things in like that, that thankfully aren't in this movie. If I got to jump in for a second. Sure. One thing I didn't get a chance to mention is, do you guys not agree that this film is entirely lacking of tropes from as far as I could tell? And you're mentioning Saving Private Ryan, you're mentioning Hunt for Red October. I did not find any overt tropes in this film. I did not find that there was any overtly tropey characterization of like your standard archetypal characters in this. It's like, even though you don't get to find out that much about everyone's personal life, you get little snippets here and there. I mean, the captain is is a fairly quintessential, like stoic leader with Johan, there's the man who's usually reliable, but then fails under pressure. Did they refer to Johan as the ghost when they introduce him? And here's Johan, our phantom. You get the vibe about Johan that he's like twitchy and has a strange relationship with the engine. Yes, that is definitely the vibe I got. So I don't think that the tropes are absent. I think that they're subtly played. Okay, fair enough. They're not they're not completely yes. removed from this, but they're not like an American film would have been tropier. Because it's not a bad movie. Neither is Red October or Private Ryan. Come on now. N- no, but they're 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 a lot more ham fisted, sure. I think. Mm-hmm. Sure. Yeah. They do not have a light touch, which this movie, for better or worse, 
is done with a very deft hand in its writing and its storytelling and its character development and in its its objective like why was this movie made uh, kind of like that's that's the noise that you have to make when you're describing it <laughs> you have to, it's the law <laughs> yeah it's if if you don't do that you've you've misdescribed it you what have you done but yeah so yeah i think it's it's just trying to say, okay, so there were people that experienced this, and it is a story that is worth the telling. Unfortunately, they were Nazis, so how do we tell that story is what the objective of this film feels like to me. You know what I mean? Yeah, I don't think it's, I definitely don't feel like it's trying to glorify the regime, because everybody who's like fully bought in looks like a dickhead agreed and that's the subtle difference right i think saying this is a film about nazis is a bit broad brushing there are nazis in this film but not every Mm -hmm. german soldier depicted in this is a nazi clearly which is a distinction they're trying to make because that is a subtle thing that unless you get into history you wouldn't necessarily stop to think about right and it's and it's tough to it's when the nazis took over the government it's tough to to keep a, a pin in the fact that like the Nazi party was a political party. Right. So it's like assuming that everybody in America is a Democrat when the Democrats control certain sections of the government. Like that's just in a totalitarian yeah, government. If, if they were to like to do that in a totalitarian way, then you would assume that there were like, no dissenters even amongst the or people who were just like i'm not really political i'm just in the military like this is just i've always been in the navy man right like i've always been in the navy this is my life this is what i do yeah it's like what are you gonna do stop being in the navy i mean sure you probably could but it's like it's it's all you've done with your adult life is be in the navy the regime change happens and you're still in the navy and Obviously, you don't think they're doing a very good job at this point in the war. At least these characters don't seem to. But yeah, I don't know. Was it on target? I think so, because I like this movie. Wow, he just gave two answers in one right there. Yeah, I think it was because I liked the movie. I was on board. Like, I was there with the guys, and when they... when. You know, when they were when they were firing torpedoes at a convoy, I had an intellectual thought like an academically, I was like, maybe I shouldn't be happy that they're succeeding. But as far as a movie going person, an audience member, I was relieved when they didn't die. I was glad when they succeeded. And I, you know, I was glad that they didn't get crushed to death at the bottom of the ocean. By the time it was over, I was pretty worn out. And so they didn't die at the bottom of the ocean. They died on land. And I was kind of fine with that. But like, while I was watching it, I really was kind of enjoying this movie uh, and was just sort of along for the ride. So, yeah, I liked it. It worked on me. Dan, what did you think? Yeah, so. Again, this is a case where we know a little bit of the director's intent. And so I'll, I'll quote 
Peterson directly. You can look this. You can look up this interview on uh, YouTube, and I'll again I'll put it in our surplus ordinance. He said in response to the question, "What was it about Dust Boat that made it special?" He said, first of all, I think for the world to be forced to relate to or even identify with Nazis in a submarine was quite an unusual thing. And the film managed that in the end. In the beginning, when the film was first screened in Los Angeles, it read on the screen, of 40,000 German submariners, 30,000 died. There was a big applause. They thought it was good that they had died. At the end of the film, after two and a half hours, they all clapped and there was a standing ovation, as Liam mentioned earlier. The film turned this hostile audience around. That is a quality of the film to show that war is war and young people die for horrible reasons. So we've already talked about the subtleties of are all these people Nazis and can you broad brush everyone? I think one interesting part of this is that there's a difference between the ground forces in an army and the people who are either in the country of origin like Germany or in occupied France. And people who are, in this case, in the Luftwaffe or in the Kriegsmarine, but especially in submarine warfare, because you're spending 40 days at a time, like away, you might as well be on Mars to a certain extent. I mean, yeah, they're stopping in Vigo and like they're having some contact with the real world, but you're kind of in your own world, which is depicted by the captain dressing however the fuck he wants and never at any point referencing Hitler in any kind of positive way or the cause or anything like that, right? Like they're kind of in this own, it's like the submarine is a good metaphor for this microcosm that they are self-contained within. They are part of the German Navy. Some of them may have been there before the war. Some of them may have been conscripted during the war, but as a whole, they don't really represent the Nazi movement, right? And this is depicted in showing you a, actual nazi on board in the first officer or second officer whoever he is you know kind of like in red october we have the the political officer from the Kremlin, right like there is an obvious overt person who represents this movement and represents this totalitarian government but most of them are not that they're just regular people in the situation that they find themselves in and i think it's extra conducive to be able to show that physically with a submarine crew, just because of how far removed they are from everything. I think in a lot of ways, the objective here was to show the horrors of war in general, but to do it from a German perspective in World War II, which is, again, similar in some ways to All Quiet in World War I, but for a newer generation, for people who were born in the 40s. Uh, both Peterson and Prochno were born in 41 they're the same age i mean they, they were born during the war and grew up in the aftermath of both world wars but more specifically the second one so they got to see the destruction of their country as a you know economically and all of that as a result of this war and then they came up in the 60s and 70s when the german government was trying to make amends and trying to teach history and trying to apologize to the world for what this regime had done. And so again, that is a, I'm not German. That's a very specific position to find yourself in as an artist in the late 70s, early 80s, to look back at your own country's history. So really complex, I think, objective and goal. And as we saw from the reception that they got, 
not entirely successful at the time but it did make money it launched peterson's career in hollywood and it clearly is a cult classic and revered over time mentioned in top lists of best war films ever and also i don't know if there's a best anti-war films ever but it is in that category of all quiet in the western front which does it a little bit harder in that sense but it's still in that group of films that is pretty clearly, even if it's 50-50, leans more towards anti-war, towards showing the horror of war. Was it on target? You know, we, I talked about how even when the drama and triumph is cranked up in this film, through the score, through the dramatic acting, through the pressure that you feel physically in the way the set is being crushed or you're getting the impression that the submarine is getting crushed and there's this fear and there's this almost horror film level to the film, especially in the third act. It always feels like it's related to the character's humanity and their survival. So I don't ever feel guilty in this film sort of rooting for the protagonist because I don't feel like I'm rooting for Nazis or for the Germans in World War II, I'm just rooting for people and I'm aware of the shitty situation that they're in. I think like we talked about, the only real attack scene in it where they sink the freighter and the sailors, I, I believe they're British, they could be American, but in this case, I think they're British, are jumping off the ship on fire and you see the reaction of the captain and you see the reaction of some of the other officers and they're horrified because they thought these people would be rescued by now and they weren't really trying to kill all these sailors by burning them alive that wasn't their intent and that really comes across in that scene the disillusionment that you see in the captain of u96 but in thompson as well right who is getting hammered and like it's my fucking guy subtly talking shit about hitler mm -hmm. and you can see that they're not exactly happy with the direction their country is going in necessarily but this is what they do this is what they've been trained to do they are quote-unquote soldiers i mean they're sailors but they're captains and they're leading their crews into battle like that's what they're supposed to be doing so yeah this is a tricky target and a tricky goal i think but i think time has shown now that we're a solid 40 plus years after the debut of this film that peterson rest in peace he died august 12th of this year so he was around until recently i think he did accomplish what he was going for despite the sort of negative reaction in germany at the time for the reasons that we talked about did i like it Yes, without having seen the other two versions of the film, I definitely feel like this three and a half hour version of it really nails that point. Even in the moments where it might feel a little boring or a little slow, or it just feels disgusting from all the things you see on the inside of the boat, or it feels exhausting, it's kind of like, isn't that the point? Like, at any point where I felt uncomfortable or felt tired or felt over it, it made me relate to the characters more because I felt like I was feeling like the characters are supposed to be feeling. And so I can't really criticize a film for that. I don't really want a version of this that's two extra hours of that, even if there is some character development. I think three and a half hours is a plenty long commitment and a good middle ground. 
to deliver that. Exactly. A good middle spot. It's a nice tight three and a half hour. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, but I would agree with that. You know, it never really goes overboard, no pun intended. So I really like this film. It's not one I can watch over and over again. This is only my second time around. I'm sure I'll see it again, but it's a really interesting artifact in film history, I think, and not something that comes around all the time. And again, we talked about tropes a little bit, but I think overall this film avoids them and delivers a lot of subtle and meaningful points through the acting, through the storytelling, the writing, the cinematography. And as much as the original author was unhappy with it, I get why they made the changes that they made and I get why they dramatized certain things. I think this definitely deserves its place on those lists of best war films, best anti-war films. So Dan, what are we doing next? So next we're going to have a special guest on the podcast that we'll announce as time gets a little bit closer. He's a historian and has his own couple of different podcasts, which are pretty big one, which is a history podcast. And we'll give you the details a little bit later. But we are going to cover, outside of our Naval series, again, because we've been messing things up and throwing things around in the order here, the 1992 Daniel Day-Lewis-Michael Mann film, The Last of the Mohicans. So stay tuned for more information on that. We will let you know as it comes out in the group. And the best way to keep up with what we're doing currently is to go to Facebook and join our Danger Close podcast discussion group. You'll find the links to our Patreon as well, where every month we come out with a fresh episode of science fiction, comedy, and other sort of war-related films that are not strict enough to fall into our regular feed. And we will be seeing you guys soon next month. Bye! Bye! Allez, viens, mon gars, la vie te tend les bras Un petit tour, un, deux, trois, un petit coup, toi Et moi, c'est pas plus difficile que ça Morty! I don't need your shit tonight. Get the fuck out of here. Morty's revenge. Morty, it's been a minute. Look at that fucker. Chewing your wires. He's very fat. Hang on a sec. Morty, get the fuck out of there. Stop it. Just go on. Yeah, boy. Yeah, boy.